Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. He who wishes a favor from the sovereign, bitter and long the road to the Vatican. But the shrewd person runs to Donor Olympia with full hands, and there who wants it attains it, and the street is wider and shorter. A popular Italian rhyme during the pontificate of Innocent Tenth. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.20, Olympia Medalkini, Innocence, Dominatrix. Last time, the daughter of a tax collector from the sticks, Olympia Medalkini, married into the Pamphili family and took on her brother-in-law as her pet project. Like My Fair Lady, mixed with The Apprentice. When she had met Gian Battista Pamphili, he was an obscure church lawyer, tucked away in an office dealing with admin. Under her tutelage, he rose through the church ranks until, at the end of the last episode, he had won the top prize and been elected Pope. But while he had the top job, no one was in any doubt about who it had been that had got him there. Indeed, we ended the episode with a pro-French cardinal complaining, quote, We have elected a female Pope. Today, we will see just how right that man had been. But before we get going, I have a couple of quick notices. The first is that, because nearly everyone in my life has decided to get married this summer, I'm going to have to take an extra week off before the next episode. For once, I've managed it, time it, so it's not mid-miniseries, so kudos to me, I guess. The second is a far more exciting announcement. This will be the last episode on Olympia, and after her, we only have two women left in the series – which means it's high time we chose topic for Season 5. After some lengthy deliberations, I have alighted on three potential topics that I will post on my Patreon. 
My wonderful patrons will then have a month or so to choose the winner, and I will announce it at the end of the last episode of this series. If you are not already one of my patrons, then what are you waiting for? You get to support my show, and have my undying gratitude, and become enfranchised. What more could you want? So head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast to sign up. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Jean-Baptiste Panfili became Pope Innocent X on the 15th of September 1644. This was the culmination of a lifetime of work for Olympian Maidalkini. But much like a wedding, this was not the end of the story. It was merely the beginning of a new chapter. Olympia lost no time in calling upon her protégé and making herself at home in the Vatican. She issued orders that she would take apartments right next to the Holy Father, rooms normally set aside for the cardinal nephew. Since Innocent didn't have a cardinal nephew at the time, they didn't see this as particularly controversial. But oh, but it was. Already the gossips were spreading their wicked whispers. She was being called the, quote, dominatrix of this pontificate, with one cardinal calling this move somewhat hyperbolically, quote, scandalous, not only for the city of Rome, but for all the earth. Eventually, they gave in to pressure, and Olympia would remain resident in the Piazza Navona, but that was only really where she slept. She spent almost every waking moment by her protégé's side, at least in the early years. And, at his coronation, Olympia sat in the place of honour, with her son close by. The Venetian ambassador huffed that, quote, she, from time to time, with masterly haughtiness, is carried into the palace with a file of petitions, most of them her own decrees, and spends hours with his holiness to discuss the matters. A cardinal wrote that, quote, she fed her ambition by having her antechamber full of prelates and principal ministers, who, in their ceremony and etiquette, recognised her as almost their boss while even cardinals, in addition to their frequent visits, ran to ask her for intercession in their most serious business. She was, essentially, Innocent's first lady, his queen in all but name. Her children, too, benefited from their uncle's elevation. Her eldest daughter, Maria, was made princess of Bassano, while her youngest, Costanza, was married to a wealthy prince. Camilo, though, was less fortunate. After becoming Pope, Innocent changed his will, leaving all of his worldly goods to Olympia, not to him, as one would expect, as the Pope's only nephew. He was furious at this slight, and took revenge by refusing to marry his betrothed, Lucrezia Barberini. If you remember from last time, this marriage contract had been crucial in securing the support of her father, Cardinal Barberini. At a stroke, this would make Innocent a very powerful enemy, and position Camillo as a cardinal nephew, not merely as another Italian nobleman. This was a very real problem for Olympia, 
as now he was a cardinal nephew, he would outrank her. We've seen so many times in this season the kinds of issues that jealous, lazy and haughty sons can create, and Camilo would be no different. Camilo quickly found, though, that the duties he had been given bored him to tears. He was expected to sit in an office and, you know, work. But he was more interested in his own pleasure. His visitors would come and talk about something of import, finance, defence, trade, and would see his head drooping in a stupor or find him doodling some design for his villa. The Pope, for some reason, decided to try and kickstart his work ethic by putting him in charge of naval procurement. But the first ship that he built was so poorly constructed that it had to be immediately scuttled. One contemporary writer reported that, quote, The Pope, having created his cardinal nephew, had no other design than to instruct him bit by bit to render him capable of mastering political affairs, already being aware of the little wit that he had. But the nephew, instead of advancing, seemed rather to reverse. So much so, not profiting at all from the good instruction of his uncle, he was incapable of managing the smallest negotiation, so that every day he was poorly treated by the Pope, who always made a thousand reproaches for his ignorance. On the other hand, Olympia quickly got to work, going through the Vatican's books and reorganising everything to her satisfaction. She was mainly focused on getting its finances back on an even keel after years of overspending. Wages were cut, fat trimmed, and people doing unnecessary jobs were fired. But just because she was fighting a war on waste didn't mean she missed out on opportunities for grift. She was concentrating all power in her own hands, making her the ultimate arbiter on who got the plum jobs. If you wanted anything, you had to go through her. So the money, the gifts, they came rolling in. This seems real bad to modern eyes, but back then this was just how business was done. One of the more amusing ways that people found to get on Olympia's good side was at the card table. Her home was becoming notoriously known as a gambling den. And while she was an excellent card player, her fortunes were being boosted by most of her opponents deliberately losing. For her, this was more amusing than simply being handed a bag full of gold. This was a form of emasculation. And of course, there was no guarantee that, having been deprived of all of their money, Olympia would reciprocate and advocate for her fellow players. Many a supplicant walked away empty-handed in more ways than one. But amongst this cascade of visitors to the Piazza Navona, one person was gaining a lot of attention. Olympia Aldobrandini, who for my own sanity I will mostly refer to by her surname. She was a woman of exceptional breeding, connections and wealth. She was related to two previous popes and the heiress to a vast family fortune. She had initially married into the Borghese family and lived in a palace filled with paintings by Raphael, Michelangelo and Caravaggio, alongside an impressive collection of Bernini statues. She was young, beautiful and loaded. And people couldn't help but notice that the coach of the papal nephew was spending a lot of time travelling between the Piazza Navona and the Villa Borghese. Aldo Brandini had made it clear that she had no interest in becoming the latest in a long line of Camilo's mistresses and one-off flings. If he wanted her, 
he would have to renounce his cardinal's hat and marry her. Why she would want to do so is anybody's guess. He was handsome, but also simple and famously vacuous. And her prospective mother-in-law was not one to be trifled with. Some, though, speculated that these, far from detractive issues, were actually attractions for Olympia Aldebrandini. A man like Camilo would be easy for her to dominate, and his mother would be a sparring partner worthy of the name. And of course, marrying the Pope's nephew, even one deprived of the Cardinal's hat, brought with it certain advantages. Olympia, of course, was in favour of her son marrying, but not to a woman like Aldebrandini. She used every weapon in her arsenal to persuade the Pope to reject this marriage. But, for once, her son outflanked her. He got on his side every anti-Olympia cardinal in Rome, and then went to the Pope's sister, Sister Agatha, who also took his side. Eventually, the three of them came up with a deal. The wedding would go ahead, but it would be small and private, and the couple would then settle out in the sticks far away from the action in Rome. But, of course, this compromise only delayed future conflict. Aldobrandini would not be happy out of the spotlight. She would be back, and she had plenty of time to plan for it. This, of course, meant that there was a vacancy for the position of Cardinal Nephew, and Olympia had the perfect candidate in mind. The man in question was her half-brother from her father's first marriage, the 17-year-old Francesco Medalchini. She would need to bend the rules a bit for him to become a cardinal, as the minimum age was technically 22, and he had, you know, no experience, qualifications or aptitude for the job. Gregorio Letti, who, to be fair, was no fan of Olympia, so perhaps treat this with a bit of salt, described Francesco as having, quote, a stupid expression, no experience of the world, ignorant of letters, and even incapable of learning them. Brutal and disagreeable in his action and his words, badly made in body and mind, and unworthy to people of quality. So, not exactly a singing endorsement then. The College of Cardinals was in uproar, and so was France. See, for years the French have been pushing for Michel Mazarin, the brother of the French chief minister, Cardinal Julien Mazarin, also to get a cardinal's hat. However, his candidacy had always been blocked, primarily because Olympia was no friend of the French, but the excuse had always been that Michel Mazarin was, how do I put this delicately, a bit thick. The Pope couldn't well bend the rules for one darn cardinal while blocking the application of another, especially one so well connected. But this was a deal worth making for Olympia and she gave her young nephew a crash course in diplomacy. She installed him in the office next to hers, and gave him detailed coaching on what to do and to say in all his meetings with diplomats and supplicants. However, no amount of help can prevent lions from slaughtering a lamb, and the new Cardinal Medalchini was totally out of his depth and quickly became a walking joke. The Pope was getting daily complaints about the conduct and ability of his new cardinal nephew. His incompetence reflected extremely badly on him, and by extension, of course, Olympia. Olympia's position was weakening, and her daughter-in-law sensed blood. Six months pregnant with her first child, she returned to Rome without permission. 
She did this so there would be no doubt about the paternity or maternity of her child with Camilo. It was not beyond Olympia to insinuate that her grandchild was the offspring of some common labourer. Olympia rushed the Vatican and demanded the Pope throw her daughter-in-law out of the city. But he was unwilling to do so. Olympia didn't have the sway she once had. But she was still too powerful a woman to cross. Roman society was left with a vexing question. Do they call on Camillo and Aldobrandini and risk the wrath of Olympia? Or snub them and risk their ire if they worm their way back into the Pope's good books? A few months later, Olympia Aldobrandini went into labour and gave birth to a son named Giambattista after the Holy Father. This was a severe setback for Olympia, as the delivery of a great-nephew bearing his name would bind Innocent to Camillo and Aldobrandini. Their exile was lifted, and they were free to return to Rome permanently. Olympia was not used to being defeated and didn't take it well. Someone was due for a bollocking, and the unlucky man was a Cardinal Palotta, who went to the Pope to complain about a bread shortage in Rome. He blamed Olympia for this, and claimed that he'd rather be in a monastery than in a city dominated by a woman. When Olympia heard of this, she stormed out and accosted Cardinal Palotta in the street in front of everyone, yelling that he was a sneak and a traitor. He responded in kind, calling her a whore and decrying the fact that a woman was running Rome. Not long after, things got even more EastEnders when Olympia's carriage trundled past that of her son and grandson. By convention, the two coaches were supposed to slow and the coachmen salute each other. But Olympia insisted that hers drive on in a very public sign of disrespect. This behaviour got her a severe dressing down from the Pope, who was getting tired of all of this drama. She blamed the whole thing on her coachman, and the unfortunate man lost his job over this. But these outbursts could not have come at a worse time. The bread shortage that had sparked this mess was only getting worse, and mob violence was on the rise. Olympia got a great deal of the blame for this, and was turning into something a progenitor of Marie Antoinette. Indeed, one popular rhyme went, The Roman people are dying of hunger. It was said in the Vatican Hall, so the Pope, to put an end to the loss, said, Medelkini will eat for us all. Protesters set up shop outside her home, and unflattering caricatures and banners were a constant. Olympia suspected that her daughter-in-law was behind all of this. She was well known as a patron of the arts, and held contests at her home to create witty rhymes and songs of the like that were now being yelled at Olympia's windows. Meanwhile, beyond the Alps, things were not going well for the Pope there either. The Thirty Years' War had finally ended with the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, a treaty that confirmed Protestant rule across much of northern Europe and left France as the dominant power on the continent, with Spain, Innocent's primary backer, significantly weakened. The Peace of Westphalia is widely regarded as one of the most significant treaties in European history, but it left Innocent apoplectic. He emptied his thesaurus into crying it as, quote, Null, void, invalid, unjust, damnable, reprobate, inane, empty of meaning and effect for all time. But the Catholic powers of Europe ignored him. Famine at home, humiliation abroad, and a closest friend who appeared to be losing her touch 
Things were not looking good for Pope Innocent, and his health was beginning to wane. In short, Olympia was in trouble. We've talked before about the importance of the politics of appearance and of art as propaganda. Most of the women in the series, indeed throughout this entire podcast, have well understood this and taken full advantage. Olympia was no different. She was not one for portraiture, though. She liked buildings. We've talked already about her expansion works at the Piazza Navona, but Rome was replete with statues, gardens and fountains benevolently funded from her purse for the glorification of her name. Her greatest public building work, though, was the Piazza Navona itself. It had once been a home of vegetable sellers, and then, when they had been cleared away, it wasn't much use at all, apart from by horses and donkeys that liked to drink from the low, plain fountains. That won't do at all, thought Olympia, and she commissioned an architect to transform the square. The centrepiece was an obelisk from ancient Roman times, stolen from Egypt, naturally, but had been knocked down and broken into pieces during the Gothic sack in 546 CE, and was now lying outside the city gates. Moving it into the piazza was no mean feat of engineering, and it now stands in the middle of an ornate fountain designed by Borromini and Benini called the Fountain of the Four Rivers, symbolising the four great waterways of the world, the Nile, Ganges, Amazon and Plata. At its base is a huge representation of Pope Innocent's coat of arms, and it was about as subtle as a brick thrown in the face. The Pamphili family, represented by the Pope and Olympia, were the masters of the world. It's all very ostentatious and baroque, and still stands in the piazza today if you want to take a look. As you might imagine, conducting such a gaudy vanity project in the middle of a food shortage didn't exactly endear Olympia to the people. We don't want an obelisk and a fountainhead, came the protest chants. We want bread, bread, bread. In 1650, Rome marked its jubilee, a celebration held every 25 years designed to bring pilgrims flocking to the Eternal City, seeking indulgence from their sins, thereby filling the coffers of the Holy See. Olympia, naturally, was heavily involved in this, and was appointed as head of fundraising for the Trinity Institute, a huge guest house for visiting pilgrims. As one of Rome's wealthy citizens, she was expected to dig deep into her pockets. But being Olympia, she instead organised a fundraising committee of wealthy ladies who collected a vast sum from across the city. It was a magnificent feat, raising enough money to house around 300,000 people across the Jubilee year. How much, though, did she personally contribute? Not a sausage. She really could be a piece of work when she wanted to. Such was Olympia's notoriety that her home became a popular attraction for visitors in the Jubilee year. Much like the Hollywood tours that bring tourists the home of celebrities, Olympia's palace was constantly surrounded by pilgrims eager to get a peek at Rome's first lady. There were street sellers selling souvenirs and little dolls of her. It was big business. One man who was not happy about all of this was the Holy Father himself. This was supposed to be his party. It should all be about him. And yet, once more, 
he was being upstaged by his sister-in-law. Olympia's enemies got in his ear, spreading muck and rumour. It was all getting a bit much for Innocent. He needed to clip his mentor's wings. So, on the 20th of June, 1650, he wrote a new will. Instead of all his property going to Olympia, it would now go to Camilo. No one knew about this all yet, though. That would be a fun surprise for the future. His next move was to sideline his completely useless cardinal nephew. He was dumb, useless, an embarrassment. But what could he do? He didn't have any other nephews to elevate. And as soon as Olympia got wind of what he was up to, he would have a massive fight on his hands. But Olympia had taught the Pope well, and had some of her Machiavellian ways had clearly sunk in. He had his eyes on a promising young Italian nobleman called Camillo Astali. He casually mentioned to Olympia that Astali should get a good marriage into the family, and his sister-in-law, thinking nothing of it, agreed that he should marry one of the Pope's nieces. Pretty much as soon as the two were married, Innocent sprung his trap and made Astali his new cardinal nephew. He gave him a senior place of administration and even gave him the name Pamphili, symbolically adopting him as his son. Now this means that we now have two Camilo Pamphilis, so I will keep calling him Astali, but keep in mind that he was now officially a Pamphili. Olympia was absolutely livid and refused to recognise Astali or even meet with him. She threatened to leave the Piazza Navona and stay with her son if he did not reverse his decision. She made quite the scene, yelling and screaming at the Pope, at the man she had guided and mentored all these years. She raged at this betrayal, but Innocent stood firm. He was beginning to see her not as his indispensable rock, but as a stone dragging him and the rest of the church down with him, inviting scandal and ridicule. For 40 years they had stood together, one of the great tag teams in papal history. But now it was over. They couldn't coexist anymore. So Olympia packed her bags and moved in with Camilo and his wife Olympia Aldobrandini, which must have been awkward for all concerned. This mini-exile didn't last long. It was a bluff and everyone knew it. And so not long after, she returned to Rome and had another bust-up with Innocent, and this time, he completely lost his temper. He told her to shut up and get out. Leave now and never come back. Over the next few weeks and months, he conducted a purge of all of Olympia's men around him. He rehabilitated his nephew Camillo and wife Olympia Aldebrandini. The heavily pregnant Aldebrandini quickly ingratiated herself with the Holy Father and settled into her mother-in-law's former shoes. There was a new Olympia in town, a new Queen of Rome, and she was here to stay. Our Olympia couldn't stand to be in Rome anymore, and so settled in one of her residences in San Martino, near her hometown of Viterbo. It was a retirement of sorts, but Olympia wasn't the kind of woman to kick back and relax. She got stuck into her job as the local power broker, making improvements and investing in public works, all the while keeping tabs on the goings-on in the Eternal City. She heard all about the dispute that was erupting between the Pope's two nephews, as her son Camillo and Innocent's adopted son Astali fought for influence. 
at the unexpected elevation of a new man, Cardinal Fabio Chigi, the incorruptible and frugal Secretary of State who was rising in prominence. Olympia Aldobrandini, who had spent so long in her mother-in-law's shadow, found her hard to live up to, now that she was in the spotlight, and took all her frustrations out on her husband. The simple fact is that the two Olympias were like peas in a pod, and for Camilo, who had married Aldobrandini to get away from his mother, his wife morphing into her wasn't exactly a positive development. The two constantly fought, and all of this was getting a bit much for the 78-year-old Pope. His administration was then hit by the Mascambruno scandal, where one of his oldest friends was implicated in... Well, it's very complicated, but it involves bigamy, sodomy, and quite a bit of corruption. The whole thing was very badly mismanaged, and ended in a very public trial and execution. Innocent may have chafed under Olympia's controlling nature but she had run a very tight ship, and without her hand on the tiller, his administration was heading towards the rocks. There was no doubt about it, things had been better when she had been in charge. So, he recalled her. After two and a half years out of the limelight, Olympia was back. But, of course, since she had been away, others had established themselves in power. Olympia had stewed for a long time, Now, she would have her revenge. Her daughter-in-law, Aldebrandini, was banned from the Pope's presence. Cardinal Stalli was sidelined. And Innocent? Well, she had something rather special planned for him. Innocent suspected nothing, and indeed onlookers saw him as being revitalised by his friend's return. The band was back together, all was well. One of her first moves when she had re-established her power base was to arrange a marriage between her granddaughter, Olympiuca, and Prince Maffeo Barberini, creating a union between two of Rome's great families. Her 12-year-old granddaughter was so opposed to this union that she cried all the way through the ceremony and refused point-blank to consummate the marriage for several months. But Olympia was nothing if not completely ruthless, even with beloved members of her own family. Now that her granddaughter was well provided for, she reluctantly changed her will to restore Camilo to the position of her official heir. And she was planning quite the nest egg for him, because she was milking the papacy for all it was worth. She was wreaking revenge on the Pope where it hurt, his wallet. She sold church offices at a tremendous clip and kept all of the proceeds. She instructed her servants to sneak out as much of the Pope's possessions from his apartments and transfer them to her residences as they could. She was also taking out any member of his administration that was not entirely loyal to her. Not content with sidelining Cardinal Estali, she implicated him in a scandal involving selling secrets to the Spanish, which resulted in him being deprived of all his property and exiled. Cardinal Chigi was too powerful, clever, and incorruptible to remove, so she set about trying to isolate him by filling the papal administration with her cronies. She couldn't have him fired, but she could dilute his influence. She was now more powerful than she had ever been. According to Gregorio Letti, quote, At the palace one only spoke of Olympia. One heard only her name ringing out, Donna Olympia this and Donna Olympia that. All letters were delivered to Donna Olympia, and she read them. No one gave petitions to the Pope anymore, but only to Donna Olympia, who reported the contents to him. 
and she always received the same response from him, which was to do what she wanted. The ageing Pope was ailing and everyone knew it. And Olympia's return was ideally timed for her to be able to profit from his demise. But outside the Vatican's walls, things were not going well. The winter of 54-55 saw widespread flooding. And this, coupled with anger at Olympia's naked corruption, led to massive protests erupting in the streets. Crowds surrounded her palace night and day, throwing rubbish and insults at its walls. The streets were full of ugly rumours and insults. And all the while, Pope Innocent slowly expired. He gathered his friends and family around him and tried to bring them all together to prevent the huge fight that would inevitably break out after his death. He tried to reconcile Olympia with her daughter-in-law, Olympia Alabrandini, but to no avail. There was too much bad blood. He also tried to unite everyone around his being replaced by Cardinal Chigi, but Olympia was never going to support that either. The two refused to be in each other's presence, splitting time at the dying Pope's side. The stage was set for one almighty row. It was Cardinal Chigi that was by his side when he finally died, on the 7th of January, 1655. The bells tolled the passing of the Pope. For 11 years he had reigned, but of course for Olympia it had been a far longer relationship. It had been over 40 years since they had first met. A 21-year-old, formerly widowed bride, and her brother-in-law, an unpromising church lawyer. They had risen together, supporting each other through thick and thin, at least until his final years, and now that he was gone, how would she survive? She didn't attend the funeral, or any of the ceremonies around it. Fearful of being torn apart by the mob, she barricaded herself in the Piazza Navona. Indeed, her only contribution to the burial of her oldest friend was an act of pure pettiness. The Pope had left no details about where he would be buried, and no coffin had been purchased. So a delegation had been sent to her to inquire when one might be sent, and instructions about where he might be laid to rest. Incredibly, surrounded as she was by her own wealth, and the pilfered spoils of Innocent's palace, she cried poverty, saying that it was up to her son, the Pope's official heir, to pay for it and organise it all. When they went to Camillo, he, understandably, was incredulous that his fabulously wealthy mother would seek to palm this expense onto him, and so he refused. It was an impasse, and neither budged. So while delegations passed back and forth, the body of the Holy Father rotted and decomposed in the middle of St. Peter's Basilica. The smell got so bad that it was placed on a wooden plank and stored in a janitor's closet. One cardinal wrote in disgust that the Pope had been chucked, quote, in a vile room subjected to the injuries of humidity and filthy animals because no one wanted to pay for burial. This is a great lesson for popes as to what affection they can expect from their relatives for whom they risk conscience and honour. Eventually, Innocent's head steward couldn't take it anymore. Out of his own pocket, he bought a cheap coffin, which was all he could afford, and interred him in an unmarked grave below the basilica. It was an ignoble end for the most powerful cleric in Christendom. Once this disgraceful business was completed, the College of Cardinals could get about electing a replacement. Olympia's machinations meant that there was no official cardinal nephew with sufficient authority to guide proceedings, 
meaning this was a wide-open election. As usual, the French and the Spanish had their own candidates, but another faction was at play this time as well. Named rather excitingly the Flying Squadron, they were led by young, ambitious men loyal to Olympia. And their goal was to elect Cardinal Sacchetti, who you may remember had been one of the candidates at the last conclave. Sacchetti was comfortably ahead at the first vote, but was five votes short of what was required, and it was widely known that the Spanish would never accept him. Over the next few days, the conclave descended into farce. There were fistfights, disease outbreaks, cruel pranks, all sorts. Olympia's nephew, Cardinal Medalkini, loudly denounced his aunt to anyone who would listen. It was taking forever, but they couldn't come to consensus. Olympia may have been locked inside her palace, but just like last time, her spies kept her well informed. The issue was that there weren't many good options for her within the college, outside of her chosen candidate, of course, but there were plenty of bad ones, and she worked hard to ensure that they didn't gain that critical mass of support. It was quite clear that Cardinal Sacchetti was never going to be acceptable to the college, so she needed someone else to throw her support behind. And the man she chose may surprise you, Cardinal Chigi. The two had rarely seen eye to eye ever since he had risen to prominence, but his incorruptibility, which had seen them at loggerheads, now rather recommended him as a candidate. He was unlikely to go after her for his own ends. He was too selfless and moral for that. Maybe he was the least bad option. Her opponents thought similarly, but for a very different reason. Surely, the whiter-than-white Chigi would pursue Rome's most flagrantly corrupt citizen to the end if he became Pope. Surely he would be her downfall. So this was how, on the 7th of April, 1655, Cardinal Chigi was unanimously elected as Pope Alexander VII, Habemus Papam. Very quickly, Olympia realised she had made a colossal mistake. The new Pope was utterly uninterested in her overtures. Her gifts were returned unopened, her offers of advice unheeded. Meanwhile, the Pope hunkered down and examined the books, and what he discovered shocked him. He knew Olympia had been corrupt, but the scale of what she had stolen, embezzled, and sold was beyond anything he had imagined. He had grand plans to use the power of the Vatican for good, to help the poor and needy. But he couldn't do this while all of the papacy's wealth sat in Olympia's wallet and palace. He launched a full investigation which laid out the scale of her crimes in black and white. She was given a simple ultimatum. Pay up or face the consequences. But Olympia was not one to give up without a fight. So instead of paying up, she lawyered up. She argued that she had been put in charge of the Vatican's affairs legally. The Pope's predecessor had given her the power and right to dispose of his affairs as she desired. Everything she had done had been entirely legal. Which, kinda? But no, that was never going to fly. Not now. Before she could be hauled in front of a court, she fled the city to San Martino, leaving her son Camilo to deal with the consequences of her actions. She had gotten out just in time, though, for another reason, as the Black Death had returned to Italy. Rome was ravaged by the plague, though Naples got the worst of it. Sitting in her palace outside of the city, Olympia looked on with grim schadenfreude as her enemies struggled to contain the pandemic. 
But, sadly for her, disease doesn't respect borders, and she couldn't escape its effects. She was an older woman now, and once she caught the disease, there was no stopping it. Her actions in the latter stages of her life had alienated her from the rest of her family. So, tragically, Olympia Medalkini, the uncrowned Queen of Rome, died alone. While she had never treated her son and daughter-in-law well, they did enjoy the fruits of her labours. They lived a very comfortable life, and the Pamphili family indeed remained powerful for generations to come. Indeed, it still is. If you go to Rome, you can visit the Doria Pamphili Gallery on the Via del Corso. It contains a trove of art and treasures accumulated over many years, but all started by the wealth of Olympia. Olympia Medalkini is a rather difficult woman to like. She was ruthless, calculating, and manipulative. She looked after no one's interest other than her own, and treated the people around her quite disgracefully. But equally, she is someone who demands admiration. From the moment she had refused her father's orders to become a nun, she embarked on a life in which she expected no one's authority other than her own. She sought power and won it. She wanted wealth and accumulated it prodigiously. She wanted to rule Rome, and she did just that. Arguably, no woman in the history of the Vatican has ever had more influence than she. Pope Joan was a myth. But Rome has had a female pontiff. And it was Olympia Medalkini. <laughs> 